0: We're in Ezekiel chapter 37 tonight, passage which we read on the freedom of will. Presbyterians have a doctrine of the freedom of the will, if you took notice of what we were reading. Adam and Eve had real free will, what we mean when we say free will now, the power of contradictory choice, and Adam being the federal representative lost it for us. We spoke about Charles Finney this morning. He was actually ordained Presbyterian minister. I think he was faithless to his vows, but um, he denied he, he denied the total depravity that he swore to believe in when he was ordained. Um, okay, Ezekiel, what did we say? Thirty-seven. Okay. We'll take the first 14 verses. Hear God's holy word. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I'll put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and I prophesied. There was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and bones came together, bone to bone. And i looked and behold sinew, sinews were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them and there was no breath in them and then he said to me prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to the breath thus says the lord god come from the four winds O breath and breathe on these slain that they may come to life so i prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they came alive stood in their feet an exceedingly great army And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. I'll bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life. I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And I have spoken it and done it, declares the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you're a gracious, a merciful, a loving, a long-suffering, exceedingly patient and kind and gentle God. All of those wonderful things, Father, are bound up in the Son of your love the Savior of our love, you, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, fill me as your preacher, all of us as your people, that we would take great courage, that even when we think that ourselves triply, double, doubly dead, Lord, um, you can revive us. You can bring something beautiful out of something um, which seemingly is hopeless. Help us, Almighty God, to believe. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. want to look at these 14 um, verses. I want to put this section, there are two sections obviously I didn't read 15 through, well I guess there's a little bit more. The next section deals with the reunification of Judah and Israel. There's there's going to be a connection. But let me connect these first 14 verses into the larger context of the book in general, what the book teaches and how this fits, fits in. And then I want to look at it in connection with where we are in the book we're in a particular section of the book the book in general has to do with the babylonian captivity if you've been with us or you know the book that's the historical context of this book the same with jeremiah some parts of the prophecy of isaiah um, where god has said to his people that you're going off into captivity and they are in captivity the babylonian captivity so it's specifically judah and so he tells them why they're in captivity. And you see this specifically in Jeremiah, I want to say around first chapter 27, but you, you're in captivity for your sin. And he will judge the unbelieving among Judah and chastise the believing yet sinning among Judah by sending them off to be chastised by the, the Gentiles, the, the Babylonians. And so that's that theme. But running through the book of Ezekiel is the promise that I'm going to bring you back into the land. And that's where we're... So so that's the general idea of the book. You're off in captivity. You're there for your sin. I'm a holy God, but I'm a merciful God. And I'm going to bring you back. We're in the I'm going to bring you back section. Um, Chapter 36, last week, obviously, God opened, I would say, the storehouses uh, of blessings to the people. He gave promise after promise after promise to his enslaved people. He's giving promises to slaves. And he says, I'm going to do these wonderful things. And God said, essentially, one promise with two parts to it, or a promise but considered earthly speaking and then spiritually speaking. And the promise that he made in chapter 36, which he's really continuing here in chapter 37, is he's going to take his people who are in slavery and he's going to bring them back into the promised land. So there are two slaveries or two bondages in the Bible. There's the greater slavery and then the lesser slavery or captivities. The greater slavery is obviously the Egyptian slavery, that's 430 years. So it teaches redemption. It was a real slavery, but it teaches bondage to sin and then freedom by the Lord. And then the lesser captivity is what we're considering, which is the Babylonian captivity, 70 years. Same truths. Sin is bondage. God is merciful and powerful, and he frees his people. And so we are in that section where God says, I'm gonna open up my blessings. And fundamentally, the blessing is, I'm going to bring you into the promised land, and I'm going to dwell with you. It will be a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the, There's a physical promised land that God promised to restore his people to. You read the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, he did it. So that's that first part of looking at the promise. The larger promise that God makes to his people, and the people knew it, it's sometimes... Certain of our Christian brothers and sisters think that they didn't know it, but I would argue from Hebrews 11, they did know it. Beyond the physical, temporal promised land, the people of God knew that it was the ultimate promised land. Abraham knew it wasn't a piece of land that he was sojourning towards. It was as, to use the language of John Bunyan, the celestial city. This is Hebrews 11, 1 through 40, So the promise that God makes to his enslaved people, I hate to keep emphasizing that, I'm going to free you and bring you into the promised land. There'll be no more enemies there. And then the ultimate promise, God says to his people who are in Babylon, we are in Babylonian captivity. We are in, the Apostle Peter says, was it second epistle? She who is in Babylon greets you. We, We are in Babylon. And someday all of the people of God who are in Babylonian captivity We're going to be in a place where sin will be no more. It will be a land better than flowing with milk and honey. No one will ever say that I am sick there, and Christ will be there. That's the promise. And uh, God keeps making that promise, extrapolating it. And now he, in chapter 37, he says this promise is going to be made good, but he says the promise is being made to a people. And again, they're enslaved. It's like they're dead. And I I want you to put yourself in their place. You're in slavery. A lot of people live and die in the period of 70 years in slavery. And you're not strong, and the Babylonians are very strong. And here comes God's prophet saying, God has wonderful blessings in store for you. What's your inclination? Yeah, yeah, okay. Now God is actually going to amplify the straits that they're in, the dire predicament that they're in, And this magnifies his promise. It's not as if it's, well, we're already free. Of course, everything's going almost swimmingly. Well, maybe God will make it infinitely swimmingly. It's not a big deal. But he's making a promise to people that are dead. And it will be a very big deal. When we understand the state, which is why we read um, chapter 9, particularly paragraph 3, when we understand that we're dead in our sins and trespasses, spiritually dead, this is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. The, Hebrew word is, the Greek word is nekros, where corpse is. I can never be an Arminian. I love Arminians. They're inconsistent Calvinists, most, most of them. I love them. I don't pick on them. I could never be a consistent Arminian. I, I just, the Bible doesn't teach it. The Bible teaches natural man is dead in his sins, blind, a, a tool of the devil. The language of the Bible is not freedom. It's this. You're, you're a valley of dead bones. And God says, watch this, I'm going to make you alive. So I think understanding the depths of our depravity magnifies the heights, breadth, width of God's saving grace in Christ Jesus. So we're going to look at a couple of things here. Let's look at the first, the way that Ezekiel receives this redemptive revelation, which is in a vision. That's what's going on. Some of your editors will put vision of the valley of dry bones. That's what my editor put there. The word vision is not given right there expressly. And I'll argue further into the body of my sermon that Ezekiel receives his revelation from God via uh, visions. There are a number of prophets that receive their revelation expressly, mention that it's via a vision. Uh, the book of Zechariah Zechariah has eight night visions. That he receives this redemptive revelation. Remember, we're still in the Old, Te- Old Testament epoch. I'm—I I mentioned this before. OPC Puritans. I am uh, a cessationist. I don't think God, the Holy Spirit, is writing any more Scripture. I, I'm as far as dreams and visions and those kind of things that God, that God, the Holy Spirit—I mean infallibly—is speaking to people like He spoke to the Apostle Paul or to Zechariah or to Ezekiel in a vision. I don't believe that. I think that epoch is over. That's that's my understanding, but we are still in the Old Testament epoch. Hebrews one one through three talks about that. In the former times, God spoke to His people, and we're in the former times through the urim, the thurim, the the, the little lots. He spoke in theophanies, uh, christophanies, dreams, and visions. Now, in the subsequent, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, He speaks to us. In his son, with the close of canon, it's canon. That's my view. But we're still in that time where God is revealing himself salvifically, redemptively, via dreams and visions and the like. And I understand uh, a a vision to be some kind of audible, visual, direct revelation from either God or an angelic being. An angel could give. uh, information in a in a vision. and visions are like dreams, but you're not asleep, although I do think there are a few visions that the prophets receive when they're asleep. but it's it's some notion where God shows something or the, the people see it with their eyes or they hear it with their ears, and God is directly informing their minds um, regarding some redemptive revelation. Let me read Ezekiel one one. This is how Ezekiel actually does receive the revelation from God that he preaches through visions. Ezekiel 1.1 It came about in the 30th year in the fifth day of the fourth month while I was by the river Chebar among the exiles the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. So that's how God is informing his man Ezekiel on what to say what to preach and so on. It's through visions some audio visual self revelation of God to his man. Let's go back to the valley of the vision of dry bones. It's a vision. And it, the reason I think that's significant, it wasn't an actual physical valley filled with physical dry bones, but the vision does teach, I know it's probably a, not even a phrase, but true truth, true hyphen truth, through emblematic ways. And why do I think that's important? We live in a particular part of the country, and I don't know whether I'm just being, I don't know, um, overly sensitive. There are some Christians who will say, we believe the Bible literally, and if you don't believe the Bible literally, then you're not really a Bible-believing Christian, and you're probably not a Christian at all. You've I've heard something like that. The difficulty is, when the Bible teaches in visual or symbolic language... If you were to believe that literally, without taking into account the visual character or the symbolical character, you would do great harm. You would misunderstand the Bible. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in the book of Revelation, the Bible portrays Jesus as having a sword coming out of his mouth. Does the Lord Jesus Christ have a physical sword coming out of his mouth? No, it's symbolical. The Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the vine. He's not a real. I don't mean to stress that, but the folks that do criticize the way that we understand the Bible, they say you're spiritualizing the Bible away. I promise, I'm not. But we are to understand visual language, in symbolical language, in the emblematic use of God, the Holy Spirit. He's the one that puts it that way, and so so we're trying to understand the genre, in the particular genre that's given to us. hyper-literalism in a particularly a symbolic book um, it's not biblical and uh, John on the Isle of Patmos he was another one this is the counterpart of say Ezekiel or say Daniel he has visional revelation symbolic revelation and when John is confronted he sees things or he hears things you know what the phrase is to show us the symbolic nature it was like this, it was like that. Why does he say it's like this or like that? Because he doesn't, he can't pinpoint it. There's true truth being taught, but it's done using emblematic language. And so when we're looking at this valley of, filled with dry bones, it's symbolic of something. And around about verse 11, God tells what the symbolism is. He says, this is Israel. They're dead in the connection between what we're looking at in this section, it's Judah that's in Babylonian captivity. Judah goes off into Babylonian captivity in like 585, 586, something like that. When we come to the next section, it's going to be the reunification of Israel and Judah. Israel at this time has gone off to Assyrian captivity in 520, 722. God is going to speak to both Sides the, the southern church, Judah, the northern church, Israel, and he says, you're both dead, and I'm going to restore you to new life. And that's that's the true truth being taught with this symbolic language. Again, I say that, so when our brothers and sisters, and I do count the people that perhaps hold the view, that I, I do believe that there are brothers and sisters. A lot of times they don't think we're their brothers and sisters, uh, but I, I don't think we should respond in kindness. So, God uses the figures. Now, you remember from last week's passage, we're going to look at the deadness of the church, the deadness of the people of God, but I want to back up. When God spoke to the people back in chapter 36, he says, Thus says the Lord God, to the mountains, to the hills, the ravines, valleys, to the desolate wastes, forsaken cities that become a prey, a derision to the rest of the nations. They're desolate. So, God is giving all of these wonderful blessings. I'm going to free you. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. I'm going to pour out the storehouses of heaven. And he makes the promise to a burned out, beaten down, desolate people. And he's going to amplify that. So he goes from giving the promise to a desolate, burned out, beaten down, beaten up people. And now we come here. And you think, could it be worse than being a burned out, beat up, Desolate people. Yes, it can get worse. And what's worse? Chapter 37. You're a valley of dry bones. You're dead. So God goes from making promise to desolate people to now He makes promises to dead people. And this is where our Armenian friends say, well, that's ridiculous. If we're dead in our sins and trespasses, why does God make these promises? Because He's a God who brings life out of death. That's why. (laughs) We don't bring life out of death. He brings life out of death. So God says, "You're you're dead people," and He says, "A a valley of dry and dead um, bones." I want to I, I want to say something here. When God says you're a valley of dry bones, why dry bones? And the whole notion is God is amplifying the dire straits that He finds the people in. He's magnifying their deadness, their depravity. Can you can you have a degree of deadness? Can you be quasi-dead? No. God is using this language. You, you cannot amplify or magnify. You're either dead or you're alive. And if you're dead, you're as dead as you're going to ever... Gonna, you're, you can't be twice dead or doubly dead. But God is using language emblematically as if you are so dead. It's not like god comes upon a corpse that's still warm and maybe if it's still warm just maybe maybe that corpse could come back to life god says no you, you don't have any flesh on your bones and you're lying out in scorching sun in the desert you are this far from returning to the dust of the earth that's you is there any hope for those people That's man. That's both us spiritually, and that's Judah. Actually, they have zero hope. This is why I think when Christians water down the truth of God's word because they think, well, it's going to help my evangelism. It's going to help. No, the Bible says this about the people, and they're dead in their sins and trespasses. They're spiritual necros. They're corpses, and that it throws people back on what or on who? God. There is no hope in man. There's absolutely zero hope in man. None. And that's what God is saying to the people. You are beyond hopeless in yourself. And the only hope will be the one that can give life out of death. So God is saying to Israel, you're surely dead. You haven't swooned. And again, um, was it Finney? I mentioned Finney. I don't know why I have Finney on the brain. I'm reading a book, and they've been writing a lot about Finney, One of the guys that I follow charged Finney with being a Pelagian. It's not even being an Armenian. You're a full-blown Pelagian. You you, you think that the fall had no effect on the the descendants of of Adam. But the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says this. When he looks at the valley, the whole valley, Israel, Judah, you're all dry bones. I, I want you to think of this. He's saying the whole lot of them are dry bones. Men are spiritual dry bones. The women are spiritual dry bones. The young, the old, the rich, the poor, the learned, the unlearned, you're dry bones. There's a place in the book of of Romans, chapter 3, that tells us what the nature of man is, which is this is emblematic of that. What then? Are we better than they? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Not at all. We have already charged that both Jew and Greeks are, under, are all under sin. As it is written, I just read an Arminian trying to say what this, to say that this doesn't mean what this clearly means. This is what the Bible says. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for good. All have turned aside. Together, they've all become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. And the fellow I read said, this doesn't mean total depravity. Beloved, (laughs) that's the the dry bones. You have no spiritual life. There's no hope in man. God is making promises. I'm going to save you from your sin. I'm going to make you alive. And then I'm going to put you in the promised land. Well, am I going to help you? No, you're not going to help me because you're dead. I'm going to help you. I'm going to make you spiritually alive. You're going to be born again. I'm going to give you the gift of faith. I'm going to give you the gift of repentance. I'm going to carry you all the way through. I'm going to bring you to heaven. That's what God is saying. And not only are the people of God uh, desolate, not only are they dead, there's something else that the text teaches us that Ezekiel is supposed to tell them. They're laying out on the ground. I I don't want to... It's not my purpose to enter into, like, cremation or burial. I'll just say this one thing. Um, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. The Old Testament saints were buried. The New Testament saints are buried. The Lord Jesus Christ was buried. Um, Fire is not a good sign in touching bodies of people. Historically, Christians always buried their dead, historically. It's a new thing. New, and I mean, like, the past 20 years. Um, my dad was cremated my mom was cremated no one, no Christians when I was a kid cre- cremated anybody all Christians were buried and we just took it for granted that's what the Bible taught and I just pitched that out there it's a new thing I know people get, I don't want to get anybody upset but it's a new thing that we treat the bodies of our loved ones I, my mother wanted it so I did it um, but it's a new thing and when we see bodies being pitched out on the ground like this, it's a further, it's a further revelation of, of their difficulty. It's a form of defamation. The Bible will use language when people don't receive a proper burial, God's people. God will say they're laying out on the ground, and, and forgive me the language, but it's the language of Scripture, like dumb. The, the people of god have not even been received they have not even received the proper burial they've just been pitched out on the ground like dumb it's a form of actually god's judgment against the people of god and the people of god a lot of them actually physically went through this because remember babylon got sacked and god says you you were so defamed this is what you're like you're just laying out without a proper burial so god is magnifying 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 The particular straits that they find themselves in. Now, I said at the outset that God tells Ezekiel, go tell the people of God this this news. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you new life, and I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. Let's suppose you were the person who's hearing this, because this is symbolical, and you hear this. You're desolate, you're dead, and you're defamed, and you're in slavery. No one needs to tell you that you're in slavery. I know, right now, people used to think George Bush was like he was Nero or something. I read people, oh, Bush is Nero. Bush is not Nero. Read any history. Uh, I mean, please, we're all getting too fat. We like we're not. We don't have it that bad. No matter who you like in the the White House, we're we're living on high on the hog. Uh, if you were in real slavery. You wouldn't need to be convinced you were in real slavery. And now here comes God's prophet. God's prophet says, I have wonderful news for you. God's going to make you alive and bring you back to the promised land. What would your response be to that? You're in slavery and you hear this. And you've been in slavery for, they're going to be in slavery 70 years. What, What would be your response? If you've ever been in a situation that you thought was hopeless, just think of that. You're in a situation, you don't have the strength, you don't have the wisdom, you don't have the wherewithal, no one around you does, and, it, it, and it's painful. And you're in that spot. And someone comes along and says, I have good news for you. What's the, what's the inclination, even for the believer, what's the inclination? I'm going to say there's an inclination for us not to believe it. There's going to be any, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you. If, you've, if you're in some really hard spot and someone comes and says, I have great news. Not only can we be tempted to unbelieve, we can actually get a little mad. Am I not right with that? Oh, thanks for sharing. Thanks for making light of my intense pain Bye. right So this message is being delivered to a people who already are in a place thinking, we're going to live and die as slaves. We are never getting out of here. There is no good at the end of my life. And God comes along to a people that are in a place that think there is no hope for me. Stop talking. And God says to Ezekiel, go go tell them, I'm going to make them alive. Even being a believer. We we are like the guy in Mark chapter 9. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. And let's just say the prophet came to you and told you, and you believed him, kind of. There is going to be some hope for me. And a week went by and you weren't free. Two weeks went by. A year goes by. Seventy years go by. You see what I'm getting at. God is making a promise. How are the people to respond to that promise? By faith and not by what? Sight. Well, it's been 50 years. God promised. It's been 51. God promised. It's been 52. Give up. It's over. Throw yourself in despair. It's God promised. God promised. God promised. That's what he says. I'm not, I'm not saying it's easy. If you've been in a, in a prolonged period of a hopeless situation, hopeless for man, the devil's going to tempt you and say, it's over, game over. You're going to live and die in misery. The Christians should not be hopeless. We should never be hopeless. Even when we're hopeless, we should never be hopeless. Because our God is God and we belong to him. And even when we look around and think, this is hopeless. We're looking at the wrong thing. We're looking at the wrong one. God says to his people, look to me. And I want to say something else. It's not, even, it's not only the person, the recipient, that has to struggle with his faith. It's a fight. Faith is a gift. And he gives it to us and we exercise it. I know that's a conundrum. I don't know how to figure it out. But we exercise the gift that he gives us. The life of faith is a, is a fight we have to believe what God's word says against a lot of times what we see. Isn't that right? These people did. I want you to think of the minister. Ezekiel's the minister. God tells to, ask Ezekiel, can these bones live? And what does Ezekiel say? Lord, I don't know. You know. What is God doing? God is throwing his man, not only is he throwing his people back on him, he's throwing his man back on him. What do I mean by that? Ezekiel is told the people are are dead bones. Go preach to them. This is Isaiah 6. All the people think that Isaiah 6 is an evangelistic passage. Here I am, Lord send me. It's not. God says, Go to Israel, and most of them are not going to listen to you. And what what did Isaiah do? He went. But he's being thrown back on God. He's being forced to believe. Imagine being told by God, Go talk to the people, give them this message. Most of the people are not going to believe you and they're going to hate you and most of them are going to want to kill you. Now go. What would most people do? Most people that hear this message, the dead will live. Right. Most preachers, when they hear, go preach to dry bones that are going to hate you and want to kill you. What are you going to say? (laughs) Thanks, but no thanks. What does Ezekiel have to do? Lord God, you know. You can make them alive. You can do it. I can't do anything. I can't give people repentance. I can't give people faith. I can't keep people spiritual life. I can't bring you to the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't join you to Christ. I'm a mouthpiece. But God can do it. So not only are the people forced to receive in faith, the man is forced to preach in faith. He preaches to a, a valley of dead people. And this is where I was an Arminian. I was just a confused Calvinist, but I didn't know it. This is where the Armenian Christ follow. They say, well, if people are spiritually dead in their sins and trespasses, like the Bible says, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, by the way, then it's stupid to preach to them. No, it's not stupid to preach to them. Why? Because God says to do it. Many years ago, I've said this before, I preached the sermon, I finished the sermon, and I the guy, one of the visitors, met me at the door and said, Pastor, you made a mistake in preaching. And I said, only one? And, he, of course, I was waiting for the, what he was going to tell me I did wrong. Thanked him profusely for it. And he said, you said, if you're not a Christian, that you should repent and believe in Jesus. I said, guilty as charged. And he said, ah, Pastor, you know there are a valley of dead bones. And I said, ah, Father in the faith, that's God's business. My business is to say, in the name of Jesus, live. And it's the Holy Spirit's business, which is what we're told, to make them alive. Does that make sense? So when our Armenian friends, brothers and sisters, say it doesn't make sense? Of course it makes sense. It's God's appointed means. The preaching of the word, James 1.18, 1 Peter 2.21-25, we are born again by the, the word. It's the word that does it, as effectually applied by the Holy Spirit. And God's minister is told, go do it. Um, if a minister thought as Charles Finney thought that with the right means he could convert a minister could convert a human being through the right means how long would you stay in the ministry if you thought it was up to you and you could do it two minutes because you're going to learn what you can't you can't try to control a two year old kid and come back and talk to me right what did they what did John Calvin say good luck with that only kidding you can't even control a two-year-old kid let alone convert a human being but we're not being cast on human beings the people are being cast on god ezekiel's being cast on god and god says preach to them it's through the foolishness of preaching it doesn't look like it should do anything you're just going to tell people the word of god and you think that's going to work God says it. <laughs> he says it through the foolishness of the preaching of the Word. God brings us to Christ. The foolishness of the preaching of the Word, He builds us up in Christ. That's what He does. I think God regenerates us immediately through the Word of God, based on this passage and other passages in the New Testament that I just referenced. But God wants His people to have hope. So this passage speaks to two things, fundamentally. One is spiritual resurrection from spiritual death and the other is um, a physical resurrection from physical death and the other is a revival and the revival is the revival of the whole people of God the people are essentially dead en masse and God says I'm going to revive you by the Holy Spirit and then ultimately he's going to bring us into the promised land but I want to end with this with this promise of new life from the dead, it teaches us something about the essential nature of Christianity. There are lots of different forms of Christians. The older I get, the more the more Christians I do love. I, I still hold our doctrinal distinctives, but I'm just I'm less desirous to fight with other Christians who are true Christians um, without giving up my doctrinal distinctives. One fundamental true truth of biblical Christianity is the resurrection from the death. True biblical Christianity is an otherworldly religion. We are decidedly otherworldly. Can you look at your bulletins? Horatius Bonar is one of my favorite guys, a Scottish guy, um, and I'm going to read it. Life is a journey, not a home, a road, not a city of habitation, and the enjoyments and blessings we have are but little inns on the roadside of life where we may be refreshed for a moment that we may, with new strength, press on to the end to the rest that remains for the people of God. That's what this is a promise for. We're just a passing through. The world is not our home. God in Christ gave us new life, and God in Christ is going to take us to be with him in the heavenly promised land. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.